0: Alan Landers has been running the family B&B in Caharsavine for quite a while now, just like his parents before him. So I took over the family business here at Bed and Breakfast
1: um, about 26, 27 years ago. And prior to that, my mum and dad had started the business back in 1956. So we're, we're quite a few years in business.
0: In that time, they've weathered the worst that the troubles had to throw at the tourist industry: recessions in the seventies, eighties, the crash, nine eleven, Brexit, competition from Airbnb, and so on. But there was something else more harmful to his business than all of those. Oh, we'd have been, I suppose, down
1: thirty percent, maybe up as far as forty percent at times. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite
0: a big number to be dropping back. What nearly put Alan out of business was NAMA or NAMA's Zombie Hotels, which cut rates just to keep the doors open. Three-star hotels with 30 euro a night rooms, while the bad bank figured out what it was going to do with them. It was a hotel that were
1: distressed. They were taken over by NAMA. Um, management companies were put in running them. They were offering basically cheaper prices. They were competing with the B&B market price, um, which would have taken a lot of business from the B&Bs. Um, and yeah, we'd, we'd contend with that, um, probably more so in the bigger towns where, where you would have had more competition. The NAM hotels then coming in, offering much cheaper accommodation, um, possibly would not have had the same level of services behind them because they were just running on a skeleton crew. So they were able to offer prices much cheaper and effectively cut, undercut
0: B&Bs. The butterfly effect. A butterfly flaps its wings and causes a typhoon. It's about unintended consequences of one action and something else a long, long way away. In this case, the solution to the non-performing loans of hotel developers resulted in over 300 B&Bs closing their doors between 2011 and 2014. Alan Landers was lucky that he wasn't one of them but it was touch and go for a long time. We weathered it away, but our numbers drastically dropped on. No question about that. So 2011 to 2014, were you breaking even? Were you in the red or were you making any profit at all? A little bit of a profit.
1: Put it like this, the b and is almost a labour of love. I've inherited from my parents. I can't let it go. Um, would I be better off working in a job uh, with a salary coming in?
0: Yes, I would. This time ten years ago NAMA was one of if not the biggest property management agencies in the world and it was working in one of the most rapidly shrunken economies in the world too which made NAMA like a giant tiptoeing through a glass ornament shop. No matter what way it turned, no matter what it did just the mere fact of its existence was going to end up breaking a lot of things. What got broke? How did Nama change the places that we live in? Was there a better way to be a bad bank? We'll start by singing the blues again a forlorn and hopeless song for a once-mighty 77 billion euro mountain of money and then a 34 billion euro mudslide into a valley of debt. The taxpayer got stuck in the mud, bankers and developers climbed free and soared high again. But is that the whole story? Is the blues the right tune, the only mood music for our great national tragedy? We are getting a better fix on what happened to that pile of debt so that we might better fix what should happen to the next big pile of debt. And asking the big question about Nama. Did we fixate on debt at the expense of shaping a better country The blues is our piano accompaniment to this series but on that week in April 2009 that the Bad Bank idea became nama reality Lady Gaga was number 1 in Ireland again
1: I'll get you.
0: was a pretty high-stakes game of poker in itself. On one side of the table, you had developers who believed that what they held in their hands had been worth 77 billion euro and could be again once the market took off.
2: In four years' time, it will be flying and buzzing and we will have paid back okay. everybody and we'll be laughed.
0: Sitting on the other side of the table... A government in the form of NAMA lowballing what it would pay for the bank's toxic assets because they knew that each cent handed over carried with it the charge that developers and bankers were getting bailed out of a cock up of their own making. The first people to pay will be those speculators, our developers, our bankers who actually made the wrong call. Also at the table, a group of capital-hungry bankers holding their cards very close to their chests on which loans were actually functioning and which were dead beyond revival. I don't believe the £54 or whatever is paid in the end of the day will be sufficient to
3: sort the bank's capital problems.
0: Nama paid the banks less than half of the original value of the assets and then got to work selling. Fast forward 10 years, it has paid the taxpayer back and allowed the government a good headline or two. NAMA expects to yield a profit for the taxpayer. Um, Do we want NAMA to continue its work as quickly as possible? Yes, we do. Do we want NAMA to continue to deliver a social dividend? Yes, we do. But it is important to acknowledge that NAMA is now likely to yield a profit for the Exchequer. Getting rid of the toxic assets as quickly as possible may have been good politics, but it wasn't good real estate management. NAMA sold much of the portfolio at the bottom of the market, and an unknowable sum was never realised. In other words, with a huge pot up for grabs and nobody else sitting at the table, we folded our hand and walked away. Hey. <laughs> All that time, Nama was at the centre of the political culture wars. Figures on the right had a problem with it because it represented state interference in the organic logic of the free market. Failed builders should go bust and allow leaner, fitter ones to take their place. The state shouldn't be propping them up. Figures on the left argued that those failed speculators were being kept in business by NAMA at the expense of tax paying homeowners and tenants who were never going to be forgiven such a large chunk of their debts. Failed builders should go bust, they argued. The state shouldn't be propping them up. Time has proven both sides had a point. So let's not us rehearse all of those cranky late-night Vincent Brown debates again. Let's look instead at what NAMA could have been and should have been but refused to become. So I was just delighted to
2: see something happening that other people were protesting and um, I couldn't miss the opportunity to
3: come up and support them. It's political without being part of the party political system. Uh, All very much appealed to me and I wanted to come down and show my support.
0: October 2011. The Troika was firmly ensconced and running the show. The Occupy movement found its expression in Dublin in the form of Occupy Dame Street. It captured public imagination with the single powerful slogan, we are the 99%, but the incoherence of its demands meant that it went nowhere. From that idea though, a more focused campaign was born.
3: The Nama buildings were being presented as, uh, you know, financial assets owned by this uh, somewhat obscure complex uh, agency and, and the point that we were making is that these really are public buildings in the sense that, you know, we, we paid for them and they're owned and managed by what is in effect a public agency.
0: Activist and campaigner Mick Byrne identified buildings that had been transferred to NAMA and were now sitting on Occupied as a more targeted place for the Occupy movement to turn its attentions to. He wanted to...
3: Make it clear to the public that these buildings exist, they're often unused, they were a resource... And they are, in fact, public resources or they should be seen that way. So it was an act of provocation to catch the public imagination and just to maybe give a, give a sense of, of what might be possible.
0: Mick, the building wasn't open to the public. Presumably it was locked up. How did you actually go about getting into it and occupying it? Um, I can't comment on that. Even now? has Has the statute of limitations on that not passed by this stage?
3: I'm sure the statute of limitations has passed on it, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't think. I still don't think it'd be the wisest thing for me to to talk about on radio.
0: Mixed caution is probably a reflection of how the majority feel about protection of property rights. Because what this group, calling itself Unlock Nama, had planned was, by any standards, a very limited act of civil disobedience with a very strong social conscience. They plan to take over an empty Nama building on Great Strand Street in the North City Centre for less than 24 hours to host a series of talks. I'd
1: say this, that with Nama it's uh, heads you lose, tails you lose, in terms of its relationship with
0: you. Unlike Occupy Dame Street, which was allowed to sit outside the central bank for six months, this occupation was barely a few hours old before the guardie arrived.
3: We weren't surprised that the guardie turned up, but we were surprised that they uh, were so eager to remove us from the building so quickly, given that we were very cooperative and very clear that we were going to leave the building by the end of the day. Um, there was quite a lot of, you know, it was a good atmosphere in the building. There was a lot of families, children... Um, you know there was discussions. People had brought tea and cake and all that kind of thing. It was it was a good atmosphere, and it, it it did surprise me at the time that we were forced to leave in the
0: middle of of the event. And it wasn't as if those who were temporarily occupying this building were demanding something anarchic. In this program, you have already heard the politician most unlikely to ever seek the abolition of the state, Finnegrell Simon Harris argue for exactly the same thing that Mick Byrne and the other occupiers were looking for. Do we want NAMA to continue its work as quickly as possible? Yes, we do. Do we want NAMA to continue to deliver a social dividend? Yes, we do. And in time, Fianna Fáil and opposition became very hot on NAMA fulfilling a social dividend and the Labour Party had pressed for it in its 2011 election manifesto. In fact, it was stitched into NAMA's remit that its activities should make a positive social and economic contribution – so the people occupying the building on Great Strand Street weren't asking anything of Nama that he hadn't already been told to do.
3: Oh, it wasn't revolutionary at all. I mean, it, it, was, it was very reasonable, very rational type of argument. Nama had acquired assets with a value at the time equal to 47% of Irish GDP, right? Half of the, the size of half the Irish economy at the time. To not use those assets to not even consider using those assets for social and political benefit to my mind that is an extremist argument that's a radical argument and that was the nama, the argument of nama and, and indeed of of the government at the time in in, in my view um so i think what we were, what we were simply asking was that we, the government or nama would at least look at the properties nama held conduct some kind of audit and explore the possibility of using them in relation to issues such as you know community spaces and of course the housing uh, the housing issue which would go on to become the the biggest uh, crisis that emerged from those years
0: but and here's the rub while nama had a social remit it played second fiddle to the quote primacy of its commercial mandate. Its number one job was to sweat the assets in the portfolio for as quick a buck as could be made in the relatively short amount of time allowed. Identifying community needs and figuring out how to accommodate them wasn't in the training or experience of most of the people that NAMA hired.
3: There was a real sense of not learning the really obvious lessons and not recognising that we need to create a different way of thinking about the property market and the financial system and how they relate. And I think we've still, as a society, uh, yet to learn that lesson.
0: At that point in our history, there were twice as many golf courses in the country as there were publicly owned playgrounds. There are 10 times more multinational corporations than there are community enterprise centres. Communities are stuck at one end of the seesaw, suspended in the air, Corporate Ireland planted in the ground at the other end. A lopsidedness that NAMA helped accelerate, as one very interesting case study reveals. <laughs> If this programme were made by Disney and not RTE, the story of what happened in the old Raleigh bike factory in Dublin's Docklands would be one of those 70s movies where a raggle-taggle group of kids under the watchful eye of a benevolent grown-up come together to take on and defeat the men in suits.
2: So we ended up bringing together, like, breakdancers dancers and parkour runners, you know, the guys who free run up buildings and stuff, um, all of the street art guys. And our job really in the festival was sort of create this facilitary space and then everyone would come along and just jam and have this great thing. And it just got huge traction and people loved it.
0: Dave Smith was the benevolent grown-up in this movie, one of the organisers of a festival called Kings of Concrete.
2: So we built a whole train carriage, and you'd walk in, there was this train carriage with a space rocket crashed in and smoke billowing out, and it was just this, like, to create this kind of surreal setting. But, you know, we all worked, like, relatively normal jobs, from advertising to lawyers to whatever, accountants, and this was our kind of get-out, you know, it was our way to balance it.
1: (laughs)
0: Kings of Concrete had been an enormous annual success for a number of years, and by this time, ten years ago, they were looking for a permanent home.
2: We wanted to bring um, the festival down to Docklands, and we wanted to kind of get onto the water and start to bring in wakeboarding and various kind of gamification on the water so so it suited us and there was this space down there that i had passed for years and years that i just loved and it was the old rally bike factory and because of the um Uh, recession at that time it had been left derelict and an opportunity arose to, to take this space
0: what emerged was a creative and chaotic mix of artists kids from the community suits on their lunch breaks and you could never quite put your finger on what it was going to do next but it was always energetic and always fun
2: you know, so we we started running like skill schools on the weekend because we had skate ramps. We had all the gear from the festival, so and we had loads of people, like we had artists who wanted little studio spaces. So we created this kind of like a creative culture emerged, and we were like, right, let's like um let's let's like you know put on these open days once a month, and and everyone in the community can kind of come in, and you know kids can learn to skate, they can learn to like parkour. We can get a, our video guys in, and they could do like a like a. Filming class. And I remember these two kids in particular who loved it. And they were like, they were two best buddies, Jamie and Reese, and they were from the, the flats on Pier Street. And they I remember them coming in one Saturday to go to this video class. And then this girl like Sarah, a 28-year-old Spanish Facebooker, came in and she was like, Oh, I saw you got a video class on. We were like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was the first moment for me where I was like, oh my god, like, like not only do we cast an out wide in terms of our activities, but we're actually putting on like, like educational activities. <laughs> you know that it really was cross-pollination in a neighborhood that very much had historic kind of communities on pierce street a community on irish town quite fragmented from each other and then you had this really new tech community that was so unintegrated and there was no initiatives and ways to integrate these and it was the first time i suppose that I felt, and I'd lived there since the late nineties. Like, and and where I saw that emerge, and and in a really like like authentically tangible way.
0: The American Embassy identified them as what they called a creative sandbox, an environment from which any range of cross-pollinated, genetically enhanced super ideas could emerge. Dave didn't see himself as a squatter in an area that was just waiting for commercial development to pick up again. Neither. Dublin City Council, a few key individuals recognised the worth in what was being done in the old bike factory and backed them to the hilt. When the strategic development zone document for the area was written, it all but name checked Dave.
2: I remember seeing that SEZ come in and I read it like word for word and I was like, my first feeling, right, was like that this was going to be our saviour. This is what was going to allow us to actually properly, properly grow out this space. And it was all about the sentiment of the SEZ. And I remember the line so clearly, like it was like, this is not a development about bricks and mortar. This is about the people. I'd never seen a document more in sync with what we were trying to achieve.
0: But it wasn't enough. The original owner of the bike factory, who Dave signed a lease with, had been liquidated. A Los Angeles-based investment vehicle, Oaktree, was bankrolling a new developer... And NAMA was pushing the deal through.
2: They were very dismissive, really, of, of kind of what the space was. My point to them was like, look, you guys are, are kind of in charge of development, but development seems to be looked on in a very sort of one dimensional way, which is the maximization of profit per square foot.
0: Presumably, Dave, you pointed out to them that there was a social dimension to their remit, that they were, if not supposed to be nurturing or fostering you directly. They were, at the very least, supposed not to be obliterating you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely did, and I, I remember them. Um, I remember like just a comment like that came out where I talked about development, and they were like, "That's not development." Their point was like, "This space is too nice for social value. This is not the place for you." You know, you're talking to people who see the world through a particular lens. You know, and there's nothing you can say outside of that lens that will change their mind.
0: Did you interpret that as them effectively saying only wealthy people get the nice places?
2: Effectively, yeah, I mean that that's what it was saying. Or not even wealthy people, but it was more like I suppose corporate like that that was that, that was sort of like the best use of this space is that it would be this wonderful kind of corporate entity. And I was like I was kind of horrified by that 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 was the dominant thinking there like because you know, I suppose our our activities were so close to the ground you know, and their activities were kind of much more high level in terms of like, how are we going to maximize this, you know, um, and which, which I get as well, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think they're like, I don't think they're, they're bad people. It's just they think in a certain way. And, and I, you know, when you're removed from what is happening on the ground, like in the community, what people are saying, feeling, doing, like, it's very difficult for you to make decisions on that level because you, you're just unaware. You're not tuned in.
0: If this was a Disney movie, the suits from Nama would accidentally on purpose have ended up getting pushed into Grand Canal Dock, much to the forced hilarity of Dave, his merry band of skateboarders, artists, coders, and free runners. But this is an RTE production about the Great Recession.
2: We decided we would walk away, and I remember got advice off one person in the area who said, like, you know, your one move left is like not to leave, like just refuse to go. Um and I just decided, like, that wasn't, like, the correct course of action. In hindsight, it was the move. Like, that was the moment to, to really go loud on it.
0: Later that same year, Nama was given more explicit political direction about fulfilling its social dividend. So, how has it done? <laughs> Ten years ago, NAMA identified 70 sites in its portfolio that would be suitable for new schools. Ten years on, NAMA has transferred 22 sites to the Department of Education. Looking at ten years of annual reports, I've only been able to identify two parcels of NAMA-controlled land that have become public parks. NAMA cannot tell me if there are any more than that. Early in its life, NAMA said that it had identified many potential primary healthcare facility sites. But NAMA is unable to tell me if any have actually been transferred to the HSE. NAMA has had over 20,000 homes on its books since it was set up but only two and a half thousand of them have been classified as social housing and actually transferred to housing associations or local authorities. Two and a half thousand families housed out of a property portfolio once worth 77 billion euro. The 70,000 people still on the social housing waiting list. Earlier this month, the first developer to leave NAMA, Johnny Ronan, announced that he was going to sell 100 apartments to Dublin City Council for social housing. The asking price is over €650,000 each.
3: What is most kind of galling about it is that it's a missed opportunity because NAMA clung so tightly to a view that was extremely uh, narrowly focused on Reviving the property market, selling distressed assets. And ironically, of course, that is the very logic that had produced the property and financial crisis in in the first place.
0: It's hard to balance the NAMA legacy. Will it make a 4 billion euro profit? Yes, it will. Or did it crystallise 40 billion worth of bank losses? Also, yes. Like I said, it's an inkblot test. You see what you want to see. Was it a life-saving emergency stomach pumping for the banks and the economy? Yes, it was. Was it an acceleration of Ireland's transformation into a multinational corporate aircraft carrier off the coast of Europe? Yes, it was. Was it the mother of all winning lottery tickets binned in a clear-out-of-the-crap cluttering your wallet? Yes, it was that too. regrettably, that's the kind of ambiguity which doesn't allow for a change of record just yet. We've just three more episodes to see if we're going to be forever stuck singing the blues. Busbroke is produced and presented by Philip Boucher Hayes at home in his living room, which I hope explains the occasionally less than optimum sound quality. Thanks for listening and stay safe.